A young boy comes across another young lad in the woods, one malnourished and with quite an interesting story to tell, of abduction and a strange creature. Welcome to Alone in the Woods, the show where I regale you the real people supposedly true stories of the terrifying creatures and things they've encountered out under the wide open skies. If you have a story of your own to share, send it to me at eeriecast.com forward slash outdoor, where we pay you three cents per word. And stop by eeriecast.com if you want to hear more scary stories from our team. If you like what you hear, leave Alone in the Woods a rating and review on Spotify and Apple. Thank you. Now, wrap your hands around that warm mug of cocoa and try and get cozy as we're about to begin with our first tale this evening. Netherworld of the East by Ellie Mae Brandy Book It's been nearly thirty years since I've thought about Camp Hero. Chills run down my spine at the thought of it. It was the summer in the eighties on the eastern tip of Long Island, Montauk to be exact. I rode my bike into town with some friends for pizza and shopping at the local mom-and-pop shops. My favorite was the magic shop. Downtown was the best. You could hear the warm echoes of laughter and bells on kids' bikes riding through the alleyways, eventually leading to shortcuts to the shore. The sounds of ocean waves crashing into the sand from a distance always reminded me that it was home. It was a place where you could look forward to the sound of your mother's voice calling you in as the streetlights illuminated the chalky pavement. You weren't in trouble. You just knew a home-cooked meal was waiting for you with movies and desserts to follow. But in just one day, my warm feelings of home turned into a constant need to look over my shoulder. I was just strolling through the park while walking my bike, as it's hard to ride on soft grass. I went across from the shops before heading to the beach with the rest of the crew. I wanted to see if the ducks were wandering about. That's when something caught my eye. It was a missing persons flyer taped to a telephone pole. I walked up to it, and the closer I got, the more it bothered me. It was a young boy, we'll call him Johnny. I discreetly tore the phone number tab off the flyer in case it wasn't Johnny's family that made it. It seemed like it was too professional. Like some businessman made it instead of a worried family. I was very weary about this flyer. Certain memories bounced into my head as soon as I saw it. I was scared the police could somehow be involved. The police force out here works very closely with the government bases. I didn't want to take any chances in case my gut was right. The thing that scared me the most is that I recognized the boy. He was roughly two years younger than I was, and I knew he was alive. I've seen him before. A few days prior, in fact. I went for an evening drive with my dad to see the lighthouse near Camp Hero. As we were heading back home, a few miles down the main road, I noticed a young boy running, clumsily as fast as he could through the woods. He looked like he was hiding and scared something was following him. I only saw him for a moment, but 
I notice him cautiously looking back over his shoulder, almost falling to the ground every time. It was one of those things you see in the moment and think, hmm, that, that was weird. Probably a manhunt game going on, as you shrug your shoulders and don't think more into it. In this case, it wasn't a game. It seemed to be real. As soon as I saw that flyer, I knew there was something very wrong. A bad feeling took over while a voice inside my head started echoing through my skull, pleading me not to call the police. I rode back over to the shops where the rest of the guys were hanging out and told them I had to go. They seemed confused because we only had gotten there about 20 minutes prior. I made up some excuse like, I forgot I promised out my parents with the yard work whilst they're gone. Or something of that nature. Only thing was, I wasn't heading home. It was like something was pulling me to ride across town towards the woods where I saw Johnny. I came across a small clearing off the road which led to what looked like a small trail. I rested my bike against the mossy-coated split-rail fence and started walking through the brush surrounding it. With thorns piercing my skin, rocks sneaking into the soles of my converse, and twigs trying to restrain me, I kept going. I walked and stumbled through the edge of the silent woods until I could see at least a half mile in front of me. Roughly an hour into my escapade, I came across a makeshift shelter. It was well camouflaged, which made me think, this kid is pretty smart. He didn't use any clothes for shelter. It was made of branches and was covered with wet, dead leaves left over from winter. It was shielded with parts of bushes and pine needles. I pulled my old-timer Barlow knife out of my jean pockets, just in case I piss off some angry hunter by accident. Along with my knife, I had some noisemakers I brought from the magic shop. I threw one a few feet away from the shelter, trying to draw whoever was in there out. After the first snap, I heard a sound that reminded me of a jump, as if I scared someone, or something. After a minute or two, I threw three more at the same spot as before. That's when I saw him. A small, poorly buzzed head emerged. It was riddled with dirt, dried up blood, and pieces of dead leaves. It was the young boy from the photo. His hairstyle was more of a bowl cut on the flyer, but I noticed a birthmark under his eye that made me sure. Same face, same birthmark, same build. A bit more malnourished, but still the same. And he was the right age, too. He took one look at me, and it was as though he felt I was there to kill him. His already pale face became transparent. He turned to run, but tripped and caught his foot on a root, sticking out of the ground. I rushed towards him and calmly said, I'm here to help you. He looked so scared and confused. He even began to cry. I showed him my knife, slowly raising both hands to convey I mean him no harm, and I said I was not going to hurt him. I just really wanted to help. He seemed to understand and exhibit signs that he wanted to trust me. He might have realized we were around the same age. I took a few steps closer, moving slowly and calmly. Once I got to where I was practically standing over him, I noticed he was wearing very strange clothes that of a uniform. It was torn on the right upper side of his arm by his ribs. Whatever cut his clothes broke through the skin, and he was still bleeding a bit. 
The uniform was nothing like what your average blue-collar father would wear to work. More like what you'd expect to be worn at concentration camps. I did not stop to ask questions. It just made me want to get out of there even faster. I cut him free of the thick roots his foot was caught on and tried to calm him down. I tried talking to him as gently as I could manage, with the adrenaline running through me. My name's Paul. I'm almost twelve years old, and I don't mean you any harm. Are you okay? I asked. Tears filled his puffy, bruised eyes as he fell into my arms. I was a little shocked he was able to feel comforted by me after seeing how terrified he was. I'd never seen anyone so truly scared. It was unnerving to watch and made my stomach turn. What could have possibly happened to him? Especially out here. I have always felt so safe here in Montauk. It's my home and where I was born. Nothing much worse than natural death or someone's cat getting stuck in a tree happens around here. Every now and again you hear about someone getting bullied. But it's always one arsehole just trying to look cool. I waited about five minutes, letting him cry on my soaked shoulder. He was so little for a nine-and-a-half-year-old. So fragile. I felt like if I hugged him back, or even just gave him a few pats on the back, he would bruise or break. Wherever he was, they didn't seem to care about feeding him. Making eye contact, I pulled away slowly. I asked for his name. Johnny? He crackled. His voice was broken as if he had spent an entire day screaming at the top of his lungs. I replied, Johnny, can I help you? I know a safe place you can stay. Can you trust me? I can tell you've been through something horrible, and I haven't told anyone I was headed here. I just want to understand what's going on. Johnny nodded nervously as he trembled, but he seemed so desperate for something good to happen to him. Should I call the police? I asked nervously. No! Johnny yelped with fear in his raspy voice. They were there too, he added. My assumptions were correct, and that made me feel better about my actions. The police in Montauk are voted into force by the richest locals in the area. If they have family in the force, they're welcomed in with open arms. It's hard to know who you can trust in a situation like this. Johnny confirming my concerns made me more terrified of what could come from this. I showed him that I had pegs for him to hop on my bike so I could get him out of there. He fleetly turned back to the shelter, scraping his knees as he stumbled against the bush. He grabbed a small, wrinkled, and slightly torn piece of paper, carefully folding it before tucking it deep inside of his shirt pocket. He hopped on the pegs, fidgeting for a few seconds, trying to figure out how to get his balance. He grabbed on for dear life as he cried out, Go! Quickly, please! I rode away as fast as I could. It took me a minute for my legs to keep up with the flow of riding with extra weight. He sunk his face into my shoulder, the way you would if you were trying to ride right in plain sight, not wanting anyone to see your face. It felt like we were flying through the hills of Montauk, my hair flying crazily in the wind as I lose my stomach with every dip perfectly steep enough to stay in control and give you a head start for the next incline. I loved riding on these roads. I knew every bike trail offered, disappearing into the trees and bushes with a path guiding my way to another road or neighborhood. I was pedaling so fast, whilst trying to stay safe and secure on the terrain, 
But I use these hidden paths every day. I was heading home. Back at my house, we have a nice amount of land. First, you see a gravel driveway lined with beautiful boulders and flowers in between. Dark chocolate-colored birdhouse-shaped, wooden-stained mailboxes stood at the bed of the roses at the end of the driveway. Our front yard was filled with dogwood, pine, and old oak trees. My house was a two-story high ranch, which included a wide wraparound, screened-in porch. It was a dark brown with black accents, lined with my mum's beautiful garden, with large plants and bushes in between. It was a house that was difficult to see from the street. My parents were always very cool and had awesome tastes. Our house was surrounded by trees and several acres of woods, and private trails I made with my dad. Deep through the backyard is my fort that I also made with my dad. Home was my safe place, with my own little hideaway. My parents don't bother me too much, as I don't give them a hard time, and always get my chores done. They especially don't care to go into my fort. They think it's good for kids to have their own private spot to think and reflect. They think it helps me grow and become independent. I thought to myself, it's a perfect place to let Johnny recover. It was insulated and warm with lots of blankets, and all the books and comics you could read. A couple board games, jacks, and yo-yos, too. There was even an old icebox my dad gave me for cutting the grass. I could put food in it for him. Just until I know it's safe to get my parents involved, I pondered. When I first saw Johnny, the night I was driving with Dad, I remembered always seeing armored trucks, unmarked fans, and completely black cars. They're constantly driving in and out of Camp Hero. Not to mention the stiff, mean-looking armed guards at the gate. Something told me the moment I saw the flyer that there could be a connection. A bad one at that. In the past, my dad told me about different war tactics, and how they are here to protect this part of the eastern coast from possible German U-boats invading. He didn't seem interested in giving me more details. My dad likes to pay attention to my curious face, so he has the opportunity to teach me something. But, when it came to Camp Hero, he almost looked like he was hoping I could care less to ask more about it. I paid attention to that, and respected his secrets. If he had any. My dad works on the underground pipeline, so I'm sure he'd seen a thing or two that he would rather not in his lifetime. It felt euphoric the moment my bold tires and exhausted legs hit the gravel driveway. Mom and Dad are helping Graham with redecorating since she hurt her hip, so I was able to ride straight to the fort. I let Johnny make himself comfortable as I went into the house to grab some essentials. Leftover meatloaf, Twinkies, soda, chips, cookies, and milk. I threw some first aid supplies in there too, shorts and a t-shirt into a bag with everything else and ran back. Once he settled in, we started to talk. He trusted me and was excited about my hideaway. I happily showed him everything he could use to pass the time. After a few minutes of that, I asked, Johnny, can you please help me understand what happened to you? What's with the uniform? How did you cut your ribs? And who are you running from exactly? He put his head down, took a deep breath, and told me everything he could remember. It all started at one of my favorite places, 
right in the middle of downtown. Four men grabbed him outside of a motel he had been staying at with his mother when she went grocery shopping. They were there on vacation, and no one in town saw a thing. He said they threw him into a van, tied him up, and blindfolded him. When the van stopped, they dragged him out and walked on. What he says felt like a gravel road that eventually turned into pavement. They entered through a cold, dark, and deep concrete tunnel. He could tell it was tunnel-like due to the feeling of dampness mixed with echoing sounds. He said they still had him blindfolded, but when they were dragging him out of the van, he could see it was still light out. He saw the ground and noticed the men which were dragging him wearing heavy-duty boots. Johnny was eventually stopped, frisked, and thrown into a room where he was stripped naked and abruptly hosed off with what he described as a fire hose. They said they painfully shaved his head and made him put on brownish-green jumpsuits, which had three pockets, a fixed hole on each inner elbow, and a number on the upper left side of the chest. His number read 0413. He said he thinks it was their way of identifying them all. There are at least a hundred kids in this one tunnel of the underground fortress. Johnny said the fixed holes on the suit were for needles and IVs, and they pumped them all with drugs. Sometimes they would switch the kids from one tunnel to another. That's when he saw the most horrific thing. He never thought he would see it in his lifetime, not even in his imagination. Inside the East Tunnel, they had the most advanced technology. Johnny said it looked like they could have been weapons, but not like any he'd ever seen in the papers or his Soldier of Fortune magazines. He said his grandpa was in World War I and was convinced that alien technology was real and that we were at risk as a country for corruption. Lo and behold, he goes on to tell me he was forced to stand on one side of a two-way mirror with a group of other boys to witness what could happen if they didn't behave. On the other side were two rooms separated by a wall and a door with a padlock on one side. One room resided a strange creature pacing back and forth. In the other room was a boy, eleven and a half years old, around my age, sitting on a chair with straps securing him in, and a machine that was put in front of him. He went on and on trying to describe the creature without calling it an alien, but in reality... I think that's what it was. Skinny with dark grey, slimy-looking skin. It had long fingers that had strange shapes on the tips. They looked like suction cups, but they were part of its hands. Its hands were strong, too, as though the suction cups could pull your muscles out through your own skin. Its head was large and long, with a round lump on the back of it. Its eyes were dark and glassy like a black hole bending light. Johnny described it as if it could stare right through your soul. It would call him the grace, said Johnny as he started to whimper. He continued, You tortured this kid. They had that strange machine simulate his worst fears. He got so scared he even peed his pants. That's when the creature walked in. I gulped sweating and scared of this terrifying story, even more so that it's true. He then said, It had a bucket and forced the kid's head in. 
He was drowning and eventually started twitching slowly and intermittently. That's when the creature pulled him out, right before he was completely dead. I was confused and wanted to ask questions, but decided to let him finish. It pulled a long, pointy, straw-like object out of his arm, like it was part of it somehow. Then the creature snapped the poor kid in the head with a strange mechanism, started sucking something out of his head. The creature reacted as if it was sucking a drug out or something. One of the boys that were watching cried and whimpered loudly. The creature heard him and quickly shifted, looking at us. He walked up to the two-way mirror and pointed right at him. Johnny started crying, and I let him. When he calmed down, I assured him that he was safe and decided to change the subject for a while. We hung out, talking a bit about myself and my friends, about anything, trying to get him to smile a bit. I told him about the flyer in town. He was relieved to know his mum was okay. That's when he pulled out the piece of paper that he had tucked into his pocket earlier. It was an old photo of his mum. Johnny said that his father passed away a few years ago. His mom would continue to bring him out to Montauk every summer since he passed. It was a family tradition, explained Johnny. I reached into my back pocket of my jeans and pulled out the number I tore from the flyer. Is this a phone number you recognize? I asked. Johnny looked at it closely, and I could tell he recognized it. I do, but I just can't remember where I know it from. Maybe it's the number of the motel you were staying at? Maybe your mom's still in town. I can't imagine why she would leave if you were missing. A light twinkled in his eyes. It was hope. I explained that we can't call this number until we know for sure it's not a trap. He agreed and trusted my decision. I gave him a pat on the back and told him to try to sleep. We'll get you back to your mom. I promise, I said. I showed him where the window to my bedroom was in case of an emergency, and he felt safe. I gave him one of my old lanterns so he could read, and went up to the house. Slowly I walked up to the back door to my house, whilst going over everything he'd told me. I was still shaking from the adrenaline of that day, and too scared to tell my parents. They didn't ask any questions beside how my day was, and if I bought anything down by the shops. It was nice, I bought some noisemakers and a deck of cards. Nothing crazy. How's Graham? Everything go smoothly? No more broken bones? I chuckled, trying to turn the focus off the conversation to them. Oh, you know your gram. She'd trip over a broom before walking around it. It meant she'd take one less step. Laughed my dad and my mother, as she added, Yes, Paul, everything went well. She even made martinis. She cracks me up, always turning things into a party. They continued their laughter and were satisfied with my answers. I asked to be excused and let them go on to do my own thing after dinner. It felt so weird leaving them out of this, but I needed time to grasp what had just happened and why today of all days I felt like being a hero. I'm the type of person that avoids conflict if I can. Why did I feel like I needed to do what I did? The next morning, I woke up with a clear head. I ran to grab some breakfast my mum had made, laid out under the kitchen table. I stuffed my pockets, mouth and hands with food, mumbling, Thanks, Mum. Love you. As I bolted to the back of the yard. 
Johnny was asleep with every comic laid out around him. I chuckled a bit, and he jumped. Sorry, didn't mean to scare you. I'm glad to see you enjoyed the comics, I said laughing. Johnny smiled and welcomed me in, especially when he saw the old food. We got to talking again, and I asked him if he was comfortable with me talking to my dad about him. I promise you, once he hears how involved this is, he'll do what he can to get you back with your mum without anyone knowing. My pops knows every shortcut and back road around here. Well, we can make this work, I assured him. He was hesitant to agree, but eventually said, Okay, I trust you. But I'm really scared, Paul. I can't go back there. It was horrible. They'll kill me. I was scared too, but my gut told me this was the right thing to do. Johnny, can you give me that paper I gave you with the phone number on it? I'm going to have my dad look it up in the white pages to see if it's a business. It'll give us a place to start. Johnny agreed and put his trust in me to do the right thing. I was determined to reunite him with his mother and keep him safe. I headed inside and talked alone with my dad in the garage. Hey, Dad, I, um, I stuttered. I think I have some explaining to do. While I fiddled with my wrists and kicked at the ground with hesitation. What's on your mind, Paul? He asked in a concerning tone. Remember the other night we took a drive to the lighthouse? I reminded him as he put his head down, implying that he was worried about where this conversation was headed. What is it, Dad? I asked concerned. You're going to mention something about that boy. Well, I saw him that night too. I was confused why he never said anything. What do you know about him? Dad asked sternly. He wasn't mad. It seemed more like he was worried for my well-being. I really want you to trust me, Dad. I've never lied to you or Mom about anything, and I always know I can come to you about things. I just want you to know that before I tell you what I've done... He crossed his arms, buckled his chin up as he took a deep, slow breath, but looked nervously intrigued. You can tell me anything, son. You coming to me now with sincerity proves even more that we can trust you. You're a good boy. I believe in you. Please, go on, Paul. I won't be mad. We have to talk afterward, but it all depends on what you're holding back. I was so relieved for him to say that to me. Warmth and trust ran through me. I saw something in town yesterday. It was a fly for a missing boy. Two years younger than me. Dad, he's only nine and... Well, I went back to where we saw him, Pop. I looked down, waiting for him to be upset. But he was calm. He had a look on his face that was hard to describe. It was as though he were brainstorming something. I finished telling him about my terrifying adventure, assuring him that I was careful and did everything he taught me about safety in the outdoors. He smiled and said, I didn't want to act on anything that night because you were with me. You must understand that as your father, my child comes first. It's my responsibility to keep you safe. I'm not upset, Paul. I'm actually quite proud of you. Mon, go get him and we'll take a ride. I threw the biggest hug at him as he almost fell backwards. I stumbled as I quickly turned and ran to the fort. I told Johnny the good news. He shoved whatever food was left in his mouth as fast as he could. He looked like a squirrel stocking up for winter. 
He grabbed his belongings, including the scary uniform. I gave him some comics and wrote my phone number down in the middle pages of one of them, as a surprise for him in the future. We ran up to the garage where my dad was waiting for us. As soon as Johnny saw him, he promptly fixed his posture. Standing perfectly straight, he tied his legs together, pointed his toes, and straightened out his arm, like a soldier waiting for a handshake. My dad went along with it, embracing his obvious trauma, and gave him a strong handshake. Johnny smiled, and we hopped into the Bronco. Dad heard from some of his friends in town there was a frantic woman looking for her son. She was still at the same motel, but the phone number on the flyer was different. But Dad noticed this, and decided to do a drive-by to be safe. We saw the unmarked vans and those weird all-black cars parked in the lot. Men dressed in black suits, wearing sunglasses and straight faces, were talking to the office manager. Johnny's mom was nowhere in sight. Dad didn't slow down, and no, they didn't see us. At least I didn't think they did. My dad drove to the road ramp leading to the beach. He threw the truck into four-wheel drive, and we started riding onto it. Stay down, Johnny, just in case you're seen. Johnny did exactly what he said, lying on the floor, staying out of sight through the bumpy, sliding sand. Dad drove in the direction of the motel. The beach drive pulls parallel to the main road, so we knew where we were. Eventually, we saw a woman sitting on the sand holding a dirty old pair of shoes. It was a pair of boys' shoes, and the laces were tied together. Her head was in her knees as she cried. Dad opened the creaky driver's door. She jumped as she heard him. He ducked, showing submission as he was already on guard. He slowly walked up to her and said, "'Excuse me, ma'am?' She lifted her head a bit more to get a close look at him and shifted towards me. That's when her mouth began to quiver as she shook, tears drowning her face with makeup down her chin. Are you okay? Pop asked. Some strange man just told me my son was found dead. They said his body washed up on shore of Plum Island and he must have drowned. He's a strong swimmer. He knows to stay close and always be careful of rip currents just doesn't make any sense. He would never venture out onto the beach without telling me. He's been missing for six weeks and all my posters keep disappearing. Until I saw one yesterday. It was different though. I just don't understand what happened to my boy. She cried a bit more, followed by some deep breaths. My dad let her breathe and waited for her to finish. The men that arrived this morning at the hotel seemed so strange. They wouldn't answer any of my questions and didn't seem to care. I came here alone to try and make sense of what happened to my son. She started crying again, and my dad can't stand to see a woman cry. He put his head down, kneeled next to her, putting his hand on her shoulder. He then whispered to her, Your boy isn't dead, ma'am. I think I have your Johnny. But you must be quiet and slowly walk to my truck. She did exactly what he said. She held her composure very well when she saw her son for the first time in six weeks. Suddenly we heard a commotion at the motel behind the dunes where we were parked. Pop looked out to the water and noticed a boat standing with men using binoculars watching us. Come on, let's go. Johnny, stay down. He peeled through the soft sand as fast as he could. Johnny never once peeked up, even when his mom got into the trunk. He knew if he was caught, 
Now his mother was in danger. They were a smart pair, Johnny and his mum. You could tell they took good care of each other just by seeing how smart they handled the situation. Once my dad made it back to the road, he cut through an off-road trail leading to the back road. Eventually, we made it far enough. He stuck to every back road he could take. It made the trip a bit longer, but it was worth it in the end. We made it all the way out to Wading River without being followed once. I guess the radio transition from the boatman didn't make it back to the hotel fast enough to see which direction we were headed. Plus, my dad's driving tops any men in black. Dad had one of his personal work trucks and an old parking lot near the bait shop. He was friends with the owner, who let him keep it there for when his dad works in the marsh. He gave Johnny's mum the keys and told her to follow him. We drove west until we saw signs for the Port Jefferson Ferry. When we arrived, my dad signaled for her to wait in the truck. He went to the office and bought tickets, one for us and one for Johnny and his mum. Dad explained to her that we all were going to take the ferry, and he handed her two maps. Johnny and his mum were from Delaware, but seemed like they were ready to move very far away. One map was from Bridgeport, with a map of Connecticut attached to it. The other map was of the United States and was more like a book. It was the reason they were able to get away. Far away. She hugged my dad and gave me a kiss on the cheek. I wiped it off and went to shake Johnny's hand. He laughed and forced the most powerful hug on me. They thanked us up and down as we prepared for the ferry trip. Dad parked behind them and followed them out of Bridgeport until he felt they were safe. Last I remember are the taillights of my dad's old work truck. He turned to me and said, Your mother's going to be so proud. I admire you, Paul. What you did was so brave and selfless, you've inspired me. Dad always assured me of my actions, and when it was for something good, he really made me feel like the man I was trying so hard to be. A couple of years after saving Johnny's life, the camp finally closed. Boards went up on every building. The tunnels now have six feet of cement sealing them shut. I wander in them from time to time. Now that it's open to the public. It's sick that they would make it a public park, I know. But it's like you can feel everything that happened there. I get nauseous every time I go, but still, I venture there to remind myself what happened was real. Sometimes I hear distant echoes of screaming children. It makes me think of the men who kidnapped Johnny are still here somehow. Maybe underground? Who knows? But I think something very sinister is still happening there. The air is thick with mystery and horror. I'm so thankful nothing happened to my family, but we did what we had to do. I received a phone call about five years after the great escape. It was Johnny. Hearing his voice brought all the memories back from that action-packed day. He let me know he just saw the phone number I wrote down for him in that comic book years ago. He seemed well, safe, and happy. It was the most exciting phone call I ever received, but I never heard from him again. It was so lucid. Every unanswered question I had from that day immediately invaded my curious brain. I didn't want him to relive such a terrifying time, so I kept my questions to myself. Now I wish I hadn't. 
Recently I received a letter in the mail without a return address. The handwriting was scratchy, as though it was written on a brick wall or cement floor. It made me quiver, shaking with goosebumps breaking through my skin as I held it. All it read was, Thank you for giving me fifteen happy years with my mum. She died last year of cancer. They found me, Paul. Nina must have been waiting for her name and family information for years. Goddamn obituaries. Two weeks after she died, they showed up. I was trying to pack up and move to California, but they got me. Last I remember, I was packing in West Virginia. Now I'm in some hellhole different from the last. I'm writing this letter in my cell. I'm going to throw it out of the window when they transport me again. I hope someone will find it and mail it. It's so dark and so much worse than before. If I can write you again, I will. I'll try harder to find landmarks of descriptions of my whereabouts. I really hope you get this. Johnny. I searched the grounds of Camp Hero time and time again, trying to find any kind of evidence that he would be back there. I was at a loss for words with an empty feeling in my chest. My dad is old and doesn't remember much nowadays, but when I told him about the note, he cried. He remembered Johnny and his mum. Yes, this is a sad ending to a scary adventure, but sometimes what we expect to have a happy ending doesn't always turn out the way we intended. I will always continue to research unmarked purchased land and look for Johnny, but something tells me I won't find him. I have a police scanner and multiple radios waiting for any information that could lead me to him. I was lucky to even receive the letter because the address was wrong. It went to my neighbor's house down the road. Luckily, they have known me for years and were happy to give it to me. I knocked on their door after reading it and asked to please keep a close eye for another one. I said, letters from an old friend and you may be in trouble. He had a crazy ex-girlfriend that stole his life savings before she left him, and I would like to help him if I can. I made up this bogus story to protect them. No need to spread rumors about the government to these kind, innocent people. Every day I wait for a sign, message, letter, anything that can help me find him. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. 
can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sasquatch of Wyoming by Maverick. This happened to me and my brother. Some background. We live in Park County, Wyoming. Our parents originally come from Texas, but moved away before settling in. Our father was a good man, a cowboy and a country boy. He was an awesome dad and a loving husband. He taught me and Matt, my little brother, how to be cowboys, my hunting, fishing, camping, and to enjoy life outdoors since we were kids. He was always there on our special occasions. He was there when Matt and I graduated high school, when I joined the U.S. Army, and when we got married. But sadly, after a few years, my dad passed away. The cause of death was heart disease. My mom, Matt, and I were deeply hurt. We had him buried out in the open country, like he always wanted. It was hard for us to let him go. I loved him so much. A year later, Matt and I decided to go camping up in the mountains, just to reminisce about the good times we had with our dad. Our wives understood and told us to be careful. We took a couple of horses with us, since our favorite spot was deep in the heart of the mountains. Once we had everything we needed, we headed off. We pulled over, which we usually do, saddled up the horses with all our stuff, and rode to the campsite. It's been a long time since the both of us came here. We had a bit of trouble finding our way, but eventually Matthew and I managed to arrive at the campsite, and it still looked the same as before. It always reminded me of what it looks like in the movie, Brokeback Mountain. It was midday, and the sky was covered in grey clouds, but it didn't look like it was going to rain. We tied the horses to a tree and went through the process of setting up our tents and starting a fire. We then sat around the campfire once we were done, and talked about the good old memories we had. I sure miss being here. Yeah, me too. But it's not the same without Dad. Hmm, yeah. I looked over at Matt, who was staring at the fire, and I asked him, When's the last time the three of us went camping? Matt sat there, thinking about my question before responding. When we all went out to the rodeo in Weston on the weekend after you got discharged? Wow. Can't believe it's been so long. Yep. Our conversations went on for a few hours. I then decided to go hunting alone. Matt stayed behind to guard the camp. I took my rifle and one of the horses with me, and I made my way into the woods. A few minutes of walking, I hunkered down and waited for an animal to come by. Eventually, a deer did, and I ended up killing it. I had to go through the process of skinning it before mounting it on my horse. I walked back to the camp I was leading the horse. As I was walking, I felt a sudden feeling of being watched. I even felt goosebumps around me. I didn't think anything of it at first. 
but I then heard a tree branch snap in the distance. But then all went quiet all of a sudden. It was so quiet I couldn't hear anything. I know when the woods go quiet, it means something big is nearby. I figured it was a bear. I looked around, but there was only so much I could see. I kept going, but was still cautious with my surroundings. When I got back, everything went back to normal again, and I saw Matt was preparing some canned food we brought along. It was already starting to get dark. Matt and I made the most of it and had dinner. The next morning, we went fishing at a nearby lake. It was peaceful and all. As we finished, we continued talking. We switched to the topic about cryptids, mostly Bigfoot, and how we always hoped to encounter him, or at least see sightings of him out here. You think he exists? Bigfoot? Maybe. But it's probably more popular back east. Out here in the west is rare. You know how folks are, even if they catch a glimpse of him. Yeah, probably. Well, you never know. Might be out there watching us right now. Okay, I think you and your woman have been watching too many of those mountain monster episodes. <laughs> Shut up. We managed to catch a few fish, but ended up releasing them. After about a good two hours, we headed back to the camp. But then something caught Matt's eye. You see something? He walked over to get a better look. And I followed along, and it was a trail of footprints. They didn't look like they belonged to an animal I know. In fact, they weren't normal. It was like a rectangle with curved sides, but one footprint had like a circular shape on the top right, and one on the top left. Almost looked like a toe of some sort. There's no way that's a Sasquatch trail. Nah, there's probably some fool from another camp trying to mess with us. Then when did folks start coming here? We're the only ones know this spot. I don't know. Let's just chalk it up to being a bear, alright? Sure. We made it back to camp, but we both just couldn't get that footprint out of our minds. Just the way it looked didn't look like someone would try and prank us. We talked about going back, just to see where they led. In the end, we went back, but armed just in case. Once we found them, we followed them. Every step seemed to be like three feet away from each other. And as we were following them, I felt that feeling again, like we were being stalked. I could tell Matt can feel it too, but we just kept going. Eventually, the trail led us to a fallen tree. I can tell this was made recently. It didn't look like it was caused by the wind. It looked like something big had pushed it with strong force and weight. I think my theory was right, because I found what looked to be fur or hair from something. You think Barry did this? I don't think so. If it was, then it must have been huge and strong to bring down a tree like this one. Matt then decided to try something out. He told me about how the Sasquatch communicated with others by banging a large piece of log against a tree. He grabbed the log and banged it against the tree. Thud. The sound of the thud echoed through the forest, but we heard nothing. He tried again. Thud. And waited, but this time... we heard it. A distant thud. We looked at the direction of where the noise came from. We looked at each other with shocked expressions. We heard it again, followed by what sounded like a growl mixed with bellow. Thud. Growling. 
were no words to describe what I was feeling. Then out of nowhere, a large rock came down and almost hit us, but luckily we dodged it, both making a run for it back to our camp. As we were running, I felt another boulder missing my shoulder. We didn't stop until we reached the safety of our camp. It took us a minute to breathe, and just laughed it off in the end. All I can say is that that thing must have been strong, because they looked heavy, even for a normal person to throw them. Looks like we got a Bigfoot. Ain't that the truth. We didn't know what to do next, but for the safety of the horses, we decided to take them back to the trunk. Except for one, in case we had to get out. I doubt that Bigfoot or whatever followed us back, or at least I thought. The night was uneventful, and we ended up going to sleep. Maybe two hours of sleeping, I heard Matt's tent unzip. I assumed he was going to take a leak. But then, a few minutes later, I heard my tent unzip and Matt came in with a surprised look. Bro, what are you- Shh, he said quietly. Footsteps. We heard a pair of footsteps coming from the darkness, and they sounded extremely heavy. At first, I thought it was a bear, but we heard that familiar growl again. <sighs> Matt and I were really scared at this point. I grabbed my rifle and readied it. We heard the thing going through our stuff, maybe helping itself to our food. My hands were shaking at this point. I crawled over to the zipper of my tent and peeked out, and to horror, there it was. Part of it was illuminated by what was left of the fire. It was crouched down. It was as big as a bear, but I could only imagine how huge it was if it stood up. It had fur or hair all over its body, and its arms looked like they were strong enough to rip a man in two. I heard the horse got spooked. It was making noises as if it was startled. The creature looked in its direction of the horse, and its eyes were glowing a greenish color. I felt like it spotted me and came closer to my tent, but I didn't hesitate to shoot it. I heard it roar in pain with every shot I hit. It then took off into the darkness of the woods, but I could still hear it near our camp. Matt and I ran for the horse and rode to the truck. We took out the flashlights to illuminate the way. We made it to the truck and put our horse in with the rest. We heard the thing roar again. Matt turned around to find it with his flashlight and he spotted it maybe 30 yards away and it was charging towards us. We scrambled into the truck and hightailed it out of there. We were both scared and confused at what just had happened. We stopped at a motel for the night, and in the morning we drove home. I guess we were still pretty shocked because our wives asked us what had happened. We lied and told them an aggressive bear attacked us. We went back to get our stuff we left behind, only to find our campsite was totally destroyed. The tents were ripped apart, big footprints all over them, food scattered everywhere, and the most confusing part, a huge tree looked like it was knocked down right in the center. I assumed that this was made by our Sasquatch friend, as if it was a warning to never come back. Matt and I salvaged what we could and left. We never returned to that spot again. Our spot, once our favorite place to camp, is now Bigfoot territory. And I'm joking when I say this. Bigfoot is real. My little brother and I saw it and got attacked by it. If you see any signs of him, 
leave before it's too late to regret it. We have Bigfoot in Wyoming. Watchers by Bravo Whiskey Tango. This encounter happened during late summer in the early 2020s whilst I was working as a wildlife warden in the northern region of the Appalachian Mountain Range. At the time, I had worked in the area as a warden for about a decade. I had no paranormal or otherwise strange experiences up until that point. Sure, I've heard some straight-up scary sounds at night in the backcountry, but for the most part, it's going to be explainable as an animal, wind blowing through a geographic feature, or even just the human mind playing tricks. I've always personally been more of a skeptic. Over a campfire with a few drinks, you could convince me of a small population of North American apes, Bigfoot, but demons, shadow people, etc. are largely out of my belief range. My encounter took place in a valley within the Appalachian mountain range. I had been surveying a scheduled Atlantic Salmon River that day along the bottom of a beautiful birch tree populated valley. The spot was rich in fish, but not widely visited because of the long, unmarked and winding trail it took to get there. The trail itself is quite steep, and you have to make your way through bogs and around sinkholes to get there. It's definitely not very doable for the elderly angler population here. I'd been hiking my way out of the valley a couple of hours before sunset when this happened. I was on one of the steeper sections of the trail, and would have had to cross a bog at the top before going up another steep section. It was still quite bright out for the time of day. The opposite side of the valley was in darkness, but my side was still being illuminated nicely as I tracked through a healthy spaced birch tree forest. I would say I sensed it before I saw it. Everything went quiet all at once. This in itself didn't faze me. Wildlife often go quiet as humans walk through an area. What did make me stop and look around at my surroundings was that one sound remained. A sound I couldn't dismiss as an animal. As I looked around, I heard this... chattering. Not like a squirrel, chipmunk, or other rodent, but like a loud, old-fashioned typewriter. But deeper. I narrowed the sound down to being on my left. It was straight out from me on the same section of slope. I just stood there silently listening to the clicks for some time before I saw it. Very subtle movement amongst the otherwise unmoving background of the forest. Something was... peeking? At me from around a fair-sized birch tree. It was pale, almost blending in with the birch bark and seemed to possibly have short whitish fur, though I couldn't make out for sure. I couldn't see its legs to determine if it was standing or climbing but it must have been every bit of my height of a bit over six feet, if not a bit higher on the tree where its head was stuck out watching me. It was just peeking around the tree at me, with only minimal amount of its pale face showing. I could make out its round eyes, and below that holding onto the side of the tree, as if not wanting to step out too far, was one long, human-like arm ending in a hand. There we both stayed for what felt like an eternity, frozen just sizing each other up, with it making occasional deep, loud clicks. I never got a truly hostile vibe from it, more curious or cautious, 
Though I wasn't sure what I was looking at, or what it was physically capable of, it looked impossibly humanoid or adjacent. I remember almost feeling like being in an out-of-body experience looking at it, just kind of stunned, not being able to comprehend what I was looking at. I did eventually move uphill and towards it a bit, trying to get a better angle, but it would mirror my movements, staying just behind the trees. At a certain point, I heard a few clinks uphill and behind me. As I turned, moving my attention upwards, I heard quick shuffling in both directions. Presumably, this was both of them fleeing. But as I practically split myself trying to look in both directions, I could see two of them just peeking from around trees at me. The new one was further uphill, looking down on me, whilst the first one was still on my slope, but now closer. At this point, I got cold shivers down my back and legs, not completely terrified yet, but not liking the situation I was in. I quickly and carefully made my way back to the trail, not wanting to make any fast movements or turn my back on the now more vocal creatures. I hastily left the area, and them both behind me. The last sign of them I witnessed was when I was at the top of the slope and entering a bog. From where I was, I could still faintly hear them down the slope, loudly chattering away and now breaking branches. My entire hike back, I was looking up in every tree and scanning around me. But they were not following. I arrived back at my ATV just in time after dark. Let me tell you, I lost no time getting out of there. To this day, I'm still unsure of what I saw, what kind of animal or other thing they must have been. I left my career as a warden a few months ago, and I took a new job as a maintenance worker in a small town some distance away. I don't want to say this experience shook me, but I just didn't like working alone in the forest after that. I could always feel eyes on me. Even now, I always shine my mag light against the tree line behind my depot before moving between vehicles when working at night. The forest just doesn't feel the same anymore. I'm new to the cryptid scene, so if anyone has any ideas what they could have been, I'd be more than interested. Thanks for listening. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. My Guardian Angel Saved My Life by Chris Connolly This is a 100% true story. When I was 15 years old, my friend and I were hanging out. We decided to go to the basketball court. It takes about 25 minutes to walk there. It was a summer night. We were having a great time, just joking around, laughing like any teenagers would do on a summer night. When cutting through this apartment complex like we always do, we saw a group of kids. We did not think anything of it, just kept walking and enjoying our time with each other. While walking, we heard one of the kids who were about 100 yards away behind us say something. We turned around to see what was going on, 
For some reason, these kids, who were about 12 and 13, started talking all sorts of trash. Now, being older than them, we started saying dumb stuff back. It lasted for about five minutes, then we just started laughing and walked away. We were so excited to eventually get to the basketball court and have some fun playing. My good friend kept talking about how he's going to hit all these shots and beat us all in the games we play. Eventually, we got up to our high school and the main road that you have to continue walking on to get to the playground. We crossed the street then, started walking on the sidewalk. While walking in front of the school, we noticed a car speed past us, then aggressively pull into the parking lot across the street. All of a sudden, a very big individual got out of the car with a metal baseball bat and started walking straight towards us. He was screaming all sorts of crazy stuff at us. He started getting really close, about 15 feet. One of my friends said, run, and being the youngest out of all of them, started to back up. I guess I sort of just froze. Which, then, I was soon to realize was a very dumb move. The very big guy, who was about 6'4", picked me as his target. I was the only person who decided to not run. Like I said, dumb move. The man did not care about talking. He came straight at me with nothing but pure evil in his eyes. As soon as he got about five feet from me, he raised the baseball bat in the air. Remember, I'm only 15. This was a very scary moment for me in my life. They say when you get terrified, you freeze. I froze. Right before he was about to swing, I started to back up just a couple of steps. I tripped over something and fell on my back. Because of falling down, he missed on the first swing. Still, the worst was not over yet. When he saw me on the ground, he raised the baseball bat back in the air, then hit me right in the stomach. I grabbed the baseball bat just out of pure desperation. He easily ripped it from my hands. I started screaming at the top of my lungs. This was on the main road of our town, and it was night time. I was just hoping someone would come help. By the time he got to us from his car, it had already been around 20 seconds. So after ripping it from my hands, he swung again and hit me in the leg, which ended up being right on the shin bone. That hurt got worse. If you ever banged your shin against anything, you know it hurts. Now imagine getting hit with a 34-inch metal slugger baseball bat from someone who's about 6'4", 300 pounds right on the shin. Now here comes the part that I'll never forget. First, I would like to mention I am the youngest of four children. My parents had their first child, and his name was Joey. He only lived to about three and a half years old before he got sick from a very rare disease. Sadly, he passed away at that age. I was not alive when it happened. I was born six years later. After he hit me in the shin, he decided to keep swinging. As soon as he raised the bat in the air, I could see he was preparing to end my life. He stood over me, raised the bat with both hands over his head. At that exact moment, I realized he was coming for my head. I was holding my leg and screaming in pain, so he had a wide open shot. Right before he started moving forward with a swing, everything slowed down. I'll never forget this moment. A bright white light showed up above him. It was so bright it nearly blinded me. Still, it gave me such a protective feeling. Like I knew everything was going to be okay. I knew I was going to survive this when the light appeared. Everything was moving so slow, but I was still able to move and think in normal time. I could not get up and run because my leg was done. However, the bat was coming down closer and closer, and I realized he was coming for my head, 
so I moved my arms over my head to protect myself. I remember looking at the light after I did that, and it looked like the shape of a small child. As soon as I put both my hands over my head, the light instantly disappeared and the bat came right down on my arms. It was about to swing again, but then you could hear a car braking so hard right next to us, the man turned around and I was able to look up. I saw a police officer getting out and sprinting towards us. He drew his gun and told the guy to put the bat down, which he did instantly. I remember seeing the car he came from casually driving away from the parking lot. They did not make it far, though, because they got stopped instantly from another cop car. I remember my best friend running up to check on me. I was screaming so much because all of the pain just kicked in instantly after all the adrenaline wore off. My best friend, who also ran with everyone else, which was a smart move, so I can't get mad at him, saw what happened. Luckily, he saw a cop parked at a restaurant that was around 150 yards away. He banged on his window and told him what was going on. Eventually, I got brought to the hospital. I had a broken rib, shattered elbow, and a hole right in my leg where my shin bone is on my right. The doctor asked me where I was holding my arm to block the bat. I showed him exactly where I left my arm. He told me I was very lucky because if I did not block it that way, it would have hit me in a certain spot where I would have been dead instantly or guaranteed a vegetable for the rest of my life. My father still believes that was Joey who decided to save my life that day. It was some sort of payback. My dad was born in Ireland. He was 6'5", a former professional boxer in his country. When we went to court, as soon as the man was brought in on chains, my dad jumped over the railing and started to attack him. And it took about six court deputies to pull him off. They didn't charge him, but he was not allowed back in the courtroom. I never really followed the case, but I heard the man ended up getting eight years in prison. Come to find out the kids that were talking crap, one of them told their uncle a much different story. He said to his uncle that we were chasing them with baseball bats, which we never did. So that's what led the man to attacking me. Some people tried to tell me it was just the police lights from the car. The problem with that is that the car pulled up after I got hit the last time. The light that showed up was so bright, and it happened instantly in that moment. I'm 37 now. I'll never forget the moment that my guardian angel saved my life. I would not be here today if it was not for you, Joy. I know I never met you, but thank you so much for protecting your little brother. Thanks for taking the time to join us for a few true tales this evening. I do ever so hope you enjoyed them. If you have a story of your own to share, send it to me at eeriecast.com forward slash outdoor where we pay three cents per word. And stop by eeriecast.com if you want to hear more scary stories from our team. If you want to hear more from me myself, you can find me on youtube.com forward slash nature's temper. If you like what you hear, leave Alone in the Woods a rating and review on Spotify and Apple. Thank you.